0: Join the Party and Spirits are playing in your city! God, we're so excited! Eric will be wearing his DMing glove the entire trip. I'm both worried and excited. Seven cities, ten days, at the end of March 2024, your two favorite podcasts, Join the Party and Spirits are performing live. We're playing games, rolling dice, making monsters, and a whole lot more. So come see us in Seattle at The Hereafter on March 21st. Minneapolis at Granada on March 22nd. Chicago at Reggie's on March 24th. Boston at the Rockwell on March 25th, New York City at Littlefield, March 26th, Philly at City Winery, March 27th, and D.C. at Atlas Brewworks on March 28th. Get your tickets right now at jointhepartypod.com live. That's jointhepartypod.com live. There you can see all the ticket links and find the city that works for you. When you're rolling the bones, your future is looking good. Join us. Oh, 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 right.
1: Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Julia, Amanda's off today, and this is episode 226, Soju with Dr. Hun Yi Park. I am just so thrilled that we were able to get Dr. Park on the show. It's not often that we talk about the, like, alcoholic spirits portion of spirits. So to learn about Soju and to learn about the history of it and some of the mythological ties to it was such a fun conversation to have other fun conversations that i can imagine having would be with our new patrons olivia amariah nicole woodwich danielle kaylee brian julie and Mackenzie. welcome thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it we couldn't make this show without you we are so grateful that you choose to give us a little bit of your hard-earned dollars every episode so that you can make this show possible so thank you. And thank you to our supporting producer-level patrons. Alicia, Allison, Deborah, Hannah, Jane, Jessica Kinzer, Jessica Stewart, Justin, Keegan, Nieselkins, Liz, Megan Linger, Megan Moon, Phil Fresh, Polly, Sarah, Sana, Scott, Skyla, and Zazzy. And to our legend-level patrons. Audra, Drew, Jack Marie, Key, Lada, Mark, Morgan, Necro-Royalty, Samny Todd, and Be Me Up Scotty. It is such a delight to see all of your names, ever- every week on the show and know, hey, you're helping us do the thing. Thank you for that. In terms of what I've been listening to, reading, watching lately that is helping me do the thing is a book called All the Birds in the Sky by Charlie Jane Anders. Oh my god, if you love modern fantasy, magic, but also like sci-fi and AI and like computers taking over the world, this is the book for you. It starts with two childhood friends and then finds them again after they've gone their separate ways and they've grown up and it's just fantastic i'm about like three quarters of the way through highly recommend so that is all the birds in the sky by charlie jane anders and if you love all things spirits you definitely need to check out our new merch including a coloring book expansion from our previous coloring book there's four new images that you can download right now it is really really cool i love it so much and zoe who designed our original coloring book has done such a fantastic job with these new mythological creatures i won't spoil which ones they are but i think i think you'll like them and we also have a mystery shirt option so if you want to tempt the fates and see what kind of spirits shirt you get uh definitely go to spiritspodcast.com slash merch and that's all for me. So please enjoy episode 226 Soju with Dr. Hyunhee Park. We were so excited
0: to see a book all about the history and origins and significance of soju, and we are so delighted to have author Dr. Park with us today. Dr. Park, hello. Please let our audience know who you are and what you study.
2: Hello. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Hyunee Park. I'm an associate professor of history at the City University of New York. It's Janjae College and the CUNY Graduate Center. As you can guess from my last name, I'm originally from South Korea, the country of soju's origins.
1: So, Dr. Park, can you tell us a little bit about your background and maybe your interest in mythology and history and folklore?
2: Yes, my major field was history, but my husband majored in comparative folklore. So, he has studied many folk tales, legends, and myths, and has told me many interesting stories related to his own research. Many stories like myths, legends, and folk tales, have been transmitted orally from an ancient period when it was not so easy for people to leave records. These orally transmitted stories are indeed important and are sometimes the only available sources to explore many topics in history, particularly ordinary people's lives lived in the past, like, like foods and alcohols.
1: That's awesome. That's such a good relationship that you can have with your husband and be able to tell each other these stories. Thank you. (laughs) So for our audience, what exactly is soju? I know that you wrote a whole book about this, but can you give them kind of the the basic rundown of what it is? Yes,
2: I wrote in my book that soju is the distinctive spirit of Korea. But in fact, it's not easy to explain soju quickly because soju evolved over time, re-emerging in different forms in different historical contexts. That's why, as you said, uh, I wrote a book about it and not a short article. As you see, I see the book title is Soju, a Global History and not a History of Soju. I did this to show that we can only understand Soju's developments properly from the broader perspective of the developments of spirits that's distilled liquors we are uh, enjoying, and distillation technology in world history. Not only does this book trace the origins of soju in Korea, but it also discusses controversial issues of the developments of spirits in the world that preceded the rise of soju in Korea because the spirits of other countries like China surely influenced soju.
0: So I have been drinking soju for several years, and I think for a lot of people in the U.S. that are not familiar with the spirit from their background or their family, it's something that we can have now in bars or buy at stores that we weren't able to a few years ago. So what is the kind of role and popularity of soju today?
2: So first, uh, let me clarify that soju, which is easily found in the U.S. markets and become popular in many other places, is produced on a mass scale in factories using modern technologies. Many other modern spirits today, like brandy, those are uh, similarly mass-produced in factories. But the Korean soju companies brought a new innovation to soju production that was not achieved in other countries, namely the jumbo diving of production. So for example, most soju companies produce 600 bottles of soju per minute. A soju factory I visited two years ago was like that. Mm, Some big soju companies even run lines that produce 1,000 bottles per minute it is huge wow yeah so they have produced one of the cheapest distilled liquors in the world by accelerating the soju bottling process to combine ethanol spirit water and flavors so the price of a butter is around five to six dollars in the u.s market and even in korea we can buy it at one to two dollars a butter in korea rather than just drinking the soju People mix it with beer to drink it as a bomb shot. Yeah, also people in U.S. do that. And this culture of drinking bomb shot or bomb cocktail at people's gathering at Korean restaurants is also gaining popularity as a special characteristic for Korean drinking culture. And I was very rapping when I found the soju glass at an American supermarket that had a scale, helping us mix soju and beer in desired proportions.
1: Wow. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Yeah. So that that was really funny. But uh, prior to the development of the mass-produced industrial soju in Korea, there was a rich history of the development of traditional soju using the traditional distillation method. So in my book, I really wanted to argue that in order to understand modern industrial soju, we should look at the history of traditional soju. And to understand it, we should also look at the big historical changes involved in the development of science and technology, industrial revolution, and colonialism. So the modern soju machines were introduced from Japan to Korea during Japanese colonial rule in the first half of the 20th century, and the technology goes back to the earlier scientific and industrial revolutions. If we look back in history like this, we even see that the distillation idea itself goes back to ancient times. And we can also see that traditional techniques were transferred and exchanged among different societies through the cultural exchanges involved in pre-modern cross-cultural contexts. Where I would like to say people who really like spirits, uh, they don't like uh, um, the modern soju, industrial soju. Yeah? Mm-hmm. It was the medieval Mongol empire that diffused spirits in Eurasia. Korean soju was introduced through Korea's close connections to the Mongol Empire at the time. In other words, the history of soju in Korea is closely linked to the development of global spirits. Because my main research interest in history is in the history of cross-cultural contexts. This topic has engaged me so much for these uh, past few years. I also thought that my case study of Korean soju would contribute to studies of spirits in global history. To give you a little more detail about this soju, soju is a clear and colorless liquor with a taste similar to vodka and some other spirits. As you know, spirits are alcoholic drinks produced by the distillation of grains, fruits, or vegetables that have already gone through the alcoholic fermentation. So yeah, your blog name is Spirits, yes? Uh, So yeah, (laughs) so whiskey, uh, you know, whiskey is a type of distilled alcoholic beverages made from fermented grain mash or by distilling beer. Brandy is based on uh, grape wine and Vodka based on fermented cereal grains. There are different kinds of spirits. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, some Asian spirits like baijiu in China and shochu in Japan. And soju and shochu was influenced by Zhou. It was called xiaozhou uh, in, in earlier period. And even is known as xiaozhou too. The same Chinese characters. And um, many of you have probably heard about a very well-known brand of uh, baijiu, Maotai one of the famous spirits. So Soju is not as famous as these spirit yet, but it's interesting, it's currently become popular in the last two, one or two decades on the international market. It's thanks to the recent pop cultural phenomenon of Korean wave, Liu, represented by the growing popularity of K-pop, Korean dramas, Korean foods in today's globalizing world. So many people are familiar with this. So my friends and colleagues in the U.S. told me that they began to drink soju after watching Korean dramas and going to Korean restaurants. <laughs> so um, some of you probably have a tasty soju in a green bottle at a Korean restaurant. I believe that you will have different likes and dislikes for the taste of this soju. It's because preferences vary from person to person. One of the reasons why this soju is rising fast in the U.S. is its low price. So in particular, Mm -hmm. the modern industrial soju mass-produced in factories doesn't have a high percentage of alcohol. It's around like 20%, even if uh, it's officially a spirit. According to an American journalist, a shop can sell it without having a special alcohol selling license. So it has become more widely available on the market than other spirits like vodka. Yeah. Anyway, this new style... Industrial soju seems to have gradually spread through word of mouth at Korean restaurants, even receiving journalism's attention outside Korea.
1: What I really liked was you talking about the popularity of soju because of the price point and also because certain places that have limited liquor license can sell it. Like the first time I ever had soju was at a dive bar in New York City oh. because they had beer, wine, and soju because that was they were able to serve it. And I was like, oh, I really like this. This mm-hmm. is very good.
2: Really? Oh, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. They didn't sell vodka or brandy, maybe.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. No. New York liquor licenses are very strange. Uh-huh. But yeah. it managed to get soju on their menu, and it was delightful. Oh, I
0: see. Yeah, it's a different license to sell hard Mm -hmm. liquor, like whiskey, vodka, you know, brandy, things like that. So I think that's maybe a happy side effect of very stringent liquor laws, that (laughs) if you're interested in something a little bit stronger than either beer or wine, soju is available to you. But you said it was classified as a spirit as well. So I think it's a really interesting just kind of like Venn diagram between those two spheres. Happy medium.
2: Oh, yeah. I also talked about this. There's an issue about authenticity. Yeah, it's not just about soju, mm-hmm. but many alcohols. So which one we can define as uh, spirit or distilled liquor? Because soju, in order to popularize it, they had to lower as companies, lower and lower uh, the alcohol uh, content. Oh, really? And uh, so people begin to bring new definitions and we should be flexible. You know, there are all these interesting <laughs> stories. And I also kind of argue that uh, it's better to... Be more flexible, yeah, because there are all new kinds of foods emerge uh, when we try like new things based on different uh, contexts.
1: I think so too. Yeah, let people get a taste for it. And then they can kind of move up the scale of like, you know, the base level stuff and then the very authentic stuff.
2: Right.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about traditional distilling of soju? We know about the industrial style now, but when people are snobby about authenticity, what do they miss? Like what used to be different?
2: First, let me uh, tell you that I didn't know anything about this kind of technology. And when my uh, dear colleague, Dr. Paul Buer, asked me to join his comparative distillation uh, project. I didn't know about the terms, and he said like, "What's the Korean still like? Still? What? What do you mean still?" I, and I didn't know the term. Still is the distillation device. Koreans used the specific kind of steel to distill uh, soju, and I had to study everything from the beginning. And uh, it was really uh, interesting that this is really basic term, but I didn't know this very technical term for the uh, this part of science, and also. Uh, Yes, uh, the Koreans used a special steel um, called soju gori, gori of soju. And to understand all this technology, I had to study from the very beginning what is distillation. And I realized uh, that uh, it has very interesting history and distillation also changed a lot of uh, things in global history. Distillation is a technique used to separate the liquid's constituents using boiling and condensing. So the boiling method takes advantage of the variant boiling points of components to create a vapor free of other impurities. Then it collects the purified vapor after uh, it returns to liquid forms like liquid drops. And uh, freezing technology, uh, freezing distillation applies the same logic, where it's difficult to even explain that. And so I actually uh, drew a lot of pictures to show how people distill fermented alcohol to receive uh, more higher alcohol content uh, uh, drops.
1: That was one of my favorite parts about that chapter was oh. the amount of like diagrams and stuff. And you can see they're all achieving a similar or basic concept, but they all have very different styles. I thought that was very interesting.
2: Yeah, so where uh, the diagrams show like different kinds of styles and how that evolved. Of course, there are a lot of theories and different opinions about this, but basically it's interesting compared to just fermented wines, uh, like wine and, uh, other sake, uh, so they have lower alcohol content. It was easier for people to understand the logic and from the nature they found how things fermented and, but distillation. They had to take advantage of this uh, special technique and scientific theory. So it seems like it took some time for people to develop. And it seems like based on what we have, like as a sources, uh, distillation wasn't invented in uh, many places, but at least we can see that. Distillation was uh, invented in some areas like the Middle East, to Mesopotamia, China, and ancient Greece, and even India. There are of course a lot of debates about this. Another interesting thing is distillation is te- technique and technology, but it's compared to other technologies, is quite simple. So uh, once they found it, it's not. Difficult for them to uh, spread, but they had to uh, find a reason to make it. In the ancient period, uh, some people distilled things, like fermented things, but mostly they used distillation to produce mercury or perfumes, Mm -hmm. not distilled alcohol. It's only in the medieval period, and more specifically the Mongol period from like 13th, 14th century, that distilled alcohol as a liquor and it began to spread. In my book, I connected this technology to the social need and big cultural changes. The Mongols, uh, nowadays people began to learn about this Mongol period, the Mongol Empire that stretched from the Pacific to Hungary and they conquered so many places, including China and the Middle East. And of course, previously scholars focused on a lot of brutal conquests and destructions. Recently, scholars began to see A lot of kind of some positive effects like cross-cultural contacts. It just connected societies that were far from each other, like China and the Middle East and even some European travelers like Marco Polo. So I'm teaching global history and uh, there are a lot of travelers, students uh, know about Marco Polo. So, yeah, it's interesting. And Marco Polo also talk about the Mongols. yeah, drinking habit and uh, rituals. So the Mongols had to move fast, and they drink a lot. And drinking was very important. And also, they provided alcohol as a gift to their generals. And mm. yeah, so as a, for they used it as a rituals. It was very important uh, to have those alcohols all the time. But when they move fast, sometimes it get bad. They're just fermented the liquor. Uh, so. The historical is written as kumis. is fermented mares or cow's milk. And, uh, it's like wine, uh, just fermented drinks. When they were bringing uh, to distant places, uh, for conquest or whatever, it gets bad easily. Yeah. When we look at the historical context, they encountered the, the distillation usually uh, performed in, uh, in China, not in a r- large scale, uh, it seems like they, during that period, uh, the China was under Mongol rule and the distillation spread. And the Chinese also distilled their own uh, Xiaozhou. It seems like they had it a little earlier. Uh, There are a lot of debates about the origins of distilled liquor in China. I also uh, tried to give some convincing uh, (laughs) explanation in my book. It's very complicated. Anyway, so, and uh, the Mongols adopted it. And then once they distilled their own fermented drink, kumis, and they could preserve it. So sometimes they called it like a good liquor, a sign darsun. This kind of good liquor uh, became spread and the great thing is the Mongols were able to bring it to many places because it doesn't get bad. And uh, just one interesting episode, I tell you, I went to a museum in Andong. Uh, it's famous for its traditional Andong soju. I bought like traditional soju butter, and I asked the, the seller, when is the expiration date? By when I can... And he said, there's no expiration date. <laughs> oh, wow. And I was surprised. I was stunned. And, and then he said... Actually, as time goes by, the taste gets better. Wow. So, wow, how great invention it is. Yeah, so <laughs> imagine like when people didn't have refrigerator. And so um, it was really kind of great invention. And once people understood the advantages of distilled liquor, They were able to diffuse it, yeah, Uh, to uh, to bring it to other places, and so we have also other evidence, other pieces of evidence that show they also spread um, their liquor to other places. And one place, which was quite well documented, is Korea.
0: It makes so much sense to me that distillation, because it requires equipment and because it takes so much time, or it's at least probably more expensive to make, that it would be limited to stuff like mercury and perfume. But for a culture like that, which, you know, prizes being able to pick up and go and can't refrigerate, you know, a milk-based wine, that makes complete sense. So that's, that's yeah. absolutely fascinating.
2: Another episode related to the preservation. So the Koreans continue to develop the soju once they adopted it from the Mongols. And uh the Koreans, you performed ancestor uh, rites, ancestor worships. They followed the new Confucianism, modified Confucianism. So let's just call it a Confucianism and it's very important to worship ancestors and they had to follow very uh, strict rituals and they had to start a uh, specific alcoholic drink and it's like just fermented wine. Um, it's because uh, when Confucius created these rituals in ancient times, there was no distillation. It's really ancient times and even later when the Confucius as Confucianism developed, distillation uh, really began to flourish from 13th and 14th century. People didn't allow distilled liquor uh, for the rituals, but some uh, special ritual uh, texts began to say that actually you can use distilled liquor for this kind of rituals in the summer because it doesn't go bad in the summertime in the intense heat. So it was really interesting. Yeah,
1: Fascinating change in religion because of technology. That's so fascinating. You don't see that too often. Yeah.
2: So they were very flexible. So I was very interested in this topic because, frankly speaking, I uh, didn't drink much. Yeah, even <laughs> I now drink, with, uh, with, uh, especially I like cocktail. And, but I was really fascinated by all this, this kind of technique, technological aspect. And also people use it as a medicine. People in the pre-modern period, they didn't have many different kinds of medicine, but they thought like, soju uh, would be a good medicine. And I also talked about some alchemists in China, and I also uh, read an interesting book about the European uh, religious group Francescans using alchemy to make elixir. Yeah, so I didn't know, uh, talk too uh, much, and uh, but and also in Korea they uh, they thought soju would be uh, good medicine, and there are some interesting stories in some literary works in early modern period. A nobleman had his servant, and he had certain strange uh, disease, and the nobleman uh, let the servant drink soju, and then he was cured. <laughs> that kind of story, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow.
1: We are sponsored this week by Skillshare, and there is nothing better than getting better at anything, really. Accomplishing growth is an extremely satisfying thing to do, and online classes from Skillshare make that possible. You can learn stuff about illustration, about design, about photography, productivity, creativity. I just took a class recently with Andy J. Pizza. Did I pick it because his name is Pizza? Yeah, a little bit. But Andy is really, really good at helping to unlock your creative drive and find your own personal creative style. I super enjoyed his class called Find Your Style five exercises to unlock your creative identity. It was a lot of fun. It had a lot of actionable things that I could do to really drive home the lessons that Andy was teaching. And I really learned a lot. So with Skillshare short classes, you can move your creative journey forward without putting life on hold. So explore your creativity at skillshare.com spirits, where our listeners get a free trial of premium membership. That's two weeks for free at skillshare.com spirits. We are also sponsored this week by DoorDash. Hey, listen, sometimes it is just you had a long day and the last thing you want to do is have to create a whole big meal. Even something as simple as like microwaving a meal that does not sound appealing to you can just ruin your night. And that is why I turn to DoorDash on nights like that. DoorDash connects you with restaurants that you love right now and right to your door. You can also get grocery essentials that you need with DoorDash too, which is new and very exciting. You can get drinks, you can get snacks, you can get other household items delivered to you in under an hour. And ordering is super easy. Just open the DoorDash app, choose what you want from where you want, and your items will be left safely outside your door with a contactless delivery drop-off setting. With over 300,000 partners in the US, Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia, you can support your neighborhood go-tos or you can choose from your favorite national chains. And for a limited time, our listeners get 25% off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the code CREEPYCOOL, all one word. That's 25% off up to a $10 value and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the app store and enter the code CREEPYCOOL. Don't forget that's code CREEPYCOOL, all one word, for 25% off your first order with DoorDash. Subject to change. Terms apply. And finally, we are sponsored by Brooklinen. Some mornings you just wake up and you don't wanna get out of bed. And that has been happening to me more and more lately because my bed is so comfortable since I've got Brooklinen sheets. Brooklinen was started to create beautiful home essentials that didn't cost an arm and a leg and is the first direct to consumer bedding company. They work directly with manufacturers to make luxury available directly to you without luxury level markups. They have a variety of sheets, colors, patterns, and materials to fit your needs and your tastes. I have a set that is like a really nice gray and white pinstripe. I absolutely love it. It goes great with my room. And Brooklinen has over 50,000 five-star reviews and counting. They are so confident that you will love their products. They even offer a 365 day money back guarantee. I am absolutely not sending mine back, but that is a great guarantee. And Brooklinen is so much more than sheets. They've got comforters, they've got pillows, they've got towels. They even have loungewear, which Amanda swears by. And I am gonna have to pick pick up some for myself soon, and so much more. So go to brooklinen.com and use the promo code SPIRITS to get $25 off when you spend $100 or more, plus free shipping. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com and enter the promo code SPIRITS to get $25 off when you spend $100 or more, plus free shipping. brooklinen.com and use the promo code SPIRITS at checkout. And now, let's get back to the show. So, Dr. Park, how did soju come to Korea? Like, what were Koreans drinking before soju entered the scene? And then why did it switch over to soju as the popular drink?
2: So, as I uh, told you about how uh, the Mongols brought soju to Korea. So, Korea was part of the Mongol Empire, like many other societies. And so, I also gave kind of historical details about that. So, Korea was able to enjoy some autonomy. The dynasty name is Korea korea dynasty not many people know actually the western name korea is from this dynasty name hmm. this dynasty is interesting especially uh, at the end of the dynasty it was influenced by the mongols but it had also some kind of uh, positive uh, influences because it was connected to the broader mongol empire and it's not just chinese cultures but Many other cultural uh, aspects in the Middle East and the wider, uh, broader Mongol Empire were introduced to, to Korea. Soju is one of them. It's at the Mongol period that Chinese xiaozho and also Arag. it was also called Arag in Chinese document. And the first document that introduced Arag as a distilled liquor and it explains like distillation, like is Chinese document in the Mongol period, 14th century. So hmm. Through these connections with the Mongols, the Korea was a son-in-law's country and also vassal state, but the mm-hmm. kings were sons-in-laws of the Mongol Empire. So they were able to enjoy some kind of privileges. And, and at the time, the first Korean documents began to talk about soju, that's a Korean transliteration of xiaozho, Chinese, yeah. And also arak uh, in, in Korean, but actually it's the same. And so we know soju began To be popular from the Korean period, I had to trace like what kind of drinks the Koreans drank before the soju because in earlier period, we don't have the documentation and we have some interesting documents and uh, some earlier stories are uh, involved with like very interesting, some strange folk tales. There's no uh, specific evidence that shows it had distilled liquor, but we can see it's like fermented liquor, wine, or not the grape wine, and uh, but uh, like because the Koreans, uh, like Chinese, they fermented uh, grains yeah, in general. So like rice and for Chinese sorghum, but not distilled alcohol. So it has a lower alcohol percentage.
1: So you mentioned this great story in the book about this Korean liquor whose origin had to do with the god of the Eastern Sea kind of overturning a liquor jug and creating this type of wine. Can you give a little bit of background on that and then maybe uh, kind of tell us how that kind of reflects the types of alcohol that nobles were drinking versus more of like the common folk?
2: Yeah, for the very early period of Korean history, uh, we have some documents about uh, alcohol and some stories are very mythological yeah very mythical and so uh, this uh, god of the eastern sea it's difficult to believe yeah yeah but very (laughs) interesting and actually this one, there are some other Korean sources, but this particular story is written in Chinese encyclopedic work. So Chinese and Koreans also had contacts at the time. So Koreans were also influenced by the Chinese for uh, coal making, but they also some documents also hint that the Koreans also developed their own uh, alcohol. And this story, the Eastern Sea story, is interesting because it says, so this Eastern Sea is in Chinese side, uh was greeting a lady from Goguryeo, one of the ancient Korean kingdoms, and he flirted her. She probably was beautiful and, but she declined his offer. So he was very upset and <laughs> oh no. he overthrew the liquor jug and the content flew into a lake called Chua. Later story says, so that's how the water became wine in the region called Chua and The water that became wine is very tasty. So some scholars interpret it, like uh, maybe that wine, special wine uh, called Chuo, had a special brewing technique that originates in the kingdom of Korea, the original place of the lady. So probably one of the Korean kingdoms developed this special alcohol brewing technique so some chinese poets also say oh the she likes another korean kingdom but their wine is very good so some <laughs> chinese liked it but also if we look at some other historical texts one text is from the korea period before people the mongol influence and so one uh, chinese envoy as a historical person called Xi Jing visited Korea for a diplomatic mission in the 12th century, he didn't like Korean wine very much. And he explains that the Koreans had two kinds of wines. One is for the noble people, it's more strained, clear. The other one is more milky, is for the ordinary people before they compress and make like clear wine. Also, the Korean documents talk about different kinds of wines.
1: It must have been really good wine, despite what this Chinese envoy was saying, because if you're giving the reason that it was created to the gods, this is so good a god must have made it. That has to be pretty good. (laughs) That has to be pretty good alcohol. (gasps) Yeah. (laughs) Not to diss this Chinese envoy who passed away probably 800 years Mm -hmm. ago. I have to disagree with you.
2: Yeah, Yeah, so people have different tastes. (laughs) It's fair. (laughs) The wine for ordinary people was turbid, unstrained liquor. And so the color should be a bit white. And the Korean documents say farmers consume this turbid, unstrained wine in their fields. And even travelers drank mm-hmm. on the road, like uh, common wine. Yeah, mm-hmm. this could have been similar to modern-day makgeolli. Have you heard about makgeolli? No, it's getting popular, and actually, some uh, for- foreigners, uh, non-Korean people, they really began to like it. Yeah, and uh, a bit different. It's milky, off-white, lightly sparkling wine. Um, it's rice wine that contains a slightly sweet, tangy, bitter, and astringent taste. And it's easier to make. And there are different kinds of wines. Soju nowadays is quite uh, the same, you know. <laughs> yeah, so the yeah. many companies try to make distinctive uh, soju brands, but in general, they kind of mix ethanol and other uh, flavors. But they say they bring some technology techniques to make something special. But anyway, but makgeolli, there are different kinds of methods. Maybe you will have a chance to see this makgeolli too. As far as I know, it's becoming quite popular in Japan, Korea's neighboring country.
1: Okay. Cool. Yeah. From what you described, it sounds really good. I like a lightly
0: sparkling drink. Oh, yeah. So, (laughs) yeah. Ethanol mm-hmm. tastes like ethanol after a certain point. So having something mm-hmm. that is, you know, distinct, even if it is a little bit astringent or a little bit unique, like that, is what is exciting about drinking. If that's a thing that you do, is you get to develop an appreciation for each flavor, even if at your first sip, you know, it isn't necessarily all, you know, very palatable right away. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. So we're well, just another interesting story about makgeolli. Uh, my husband is Japanese, and he loves drinking beer. And once he tastes makgeolli in korea he really loved it so for a while he just drank makgeolli
0: (laughs) like that i we are all peasants
1: here we can appreciate a peasant liquor we love it (laughs) yes
2: indeed yeah
1: save the real nice stuff for the rich folks we'll take the common man's drink any day so
2: the rich folks they also use it a lot for the ritual so yeah and they thought maybe just strained, like clear strained wine, is more purified, better. But it's interesting that because it's not written in the Confucian ritual text, they didn't try to replace it with the, this liquor soju because they had to be very strict with original text. But certain point, uh, only the summer they they wanted to be practical. Yeah, that makes so much sense. They didn't want their clear strained like rice wine be bad when they present it to the
1: ancestors. That makes sense.
2: Yeah, and, and you also asked me about how soju was introduced to uh, Korea from the Mongol Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have three interesting passages that explicitly uh, talk about soju and Arak, another liquor. The first passage is about a uh, soju group. So they were called soju group at the time. It appears in a biography of a famous general at the end of the Korea dynasty. And one of the subordinates of the general loves drinking soju. And he always drank soju with his group. Soju group was soju gang. (laughs) Yeah, they were very famous as a soju gang. And then later, the famous general realized they were uh, not doing their duty and just drinking soju. So uh, they were punished. So that's one very explicit document.
0: Wow. Soju
2: was too good. Yeah, interesting story. Another story is an edict from the Korea court, the government. They banned some... Expensive, like, luxurious goods, like silks, gold, and jade, and soju. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so we can see soju was very expensive goods. So, uh, mm. and it makes sense because, uh, they made soju using rice. Rice was very precious, and sometimes open there is, like, drought, and, uh, yeah, in later period, there are a lot of bands. They prohibit the soju, uh, also alcohol, because that uses a lot of grain and people are starving to death. Uh, but uh, so people were making soju and sometimes they even made it secret. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so soju, we can see at the end of the Korea dynasty, it became already popular. So it's not just the soldiers. So the previous theory uh, was that the Mongol soldiers brought soju and distilled liquor and soju and arak to Korea during their military expedition but in my book i show there are many other routes many other routes like uh, merchants and scholars so merchants brought a lot of soju and even uh, we can guess that Maybe not ordinary people, uh, at the time, but when the soju, uh, was introduced to Korea at the end of the Korea period, probably rich people, wealthy people, nobles, they were able to enjoy soju and maybe it was too much, like <laughs> luxury is good. And <laughs> so they were, it was banned. And, uh, the merchants, they were, uh, also selling these kind of things. And, and also I showed that it's not just soju, but many other, uh, cultural things, foods like meat, uh, Korean barbecue. I believe many audience mm-hmm. taste the Korean barbecue at the Korean restaurants. Yeah, is also another kind of popular thing. And some scholars argue that distilled liquor soju, uh, worked very well with the meat. And even now, if you go to a Korean restaurant, people drink soju with this barbecue. And soju became popular from the end of the Korean period and later Chosun period. And actually the meat eating practice was influenced by the Mongols too. So before the Mongols influence, the Koreans were more like vegetarians because of the Buddhism. Buddhism was um, mm. yeah, a major dominant religion, and people didn't eat much meat. That's why the Shijing, the Chinese envoy, he didn't like Korean drink, and also he didn't like the Korean meat because
1: uh, wasn't used to it.
2: Yeah, they they just put meat in a boiling water, and you <laughs> taste. So it's, we have some interesting stories like that. So, but anyway, Soju was strong on liquor, so it worked better with the meat. So that became popular more. Another, just one more story about Arak. The scholar at the end of the Korea period talks about Arag in his poem. He studied in China, in Beijing. Daidu is modern-day Beijing, the capital city of the Mongol Empire. He was very lonely. He talks about this, but he had a lot of communications with the Chinese authority. And yeah, so uh, we can guess they exchanged many things. Uh, the, the Korea people studying was residing in China, brought uh, many cultural things to Korea. And that includes even a new form of Confucianism, Neo-Confucianism and astronomy from the Middle East and all different things. But a lot of food cultures, we can guess, we can imagine that they launched like new food culture, meat eating, uh, distilled drinks. And he describes the Arak as exactly like a distilled liquor. Um, so uh, he says, forming like autumn drop dews and dripping down at night. So after drinking half a cup of the liquor, a warm feeling spreads to the bone. <laughs> so <we are laughs> so
1: beautiful. I'm familiar with that feeling. <laughs>
2: yeah. So suddenly the people made Arab liquor by distilling process, extracting a strong spirit from the fermented alcohol. And uh, the Korean people also called this soju as noju, means dewdrop liquor. Wow. Yeah, that's very Korean term. I, I, never, I haven't been able to find this term in Chinese. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. They introduced soju like this, and the next dynasty that replaced Korea dynasty, is Joseon dynasty, uh, they lasted by the end of the uh, 19th century. It spread so quickly, and scholars didn't pay attention to the spread of soju at the time and we know more about soju in later periods but a lot of doc- I found that a lot of chronicles and documents say that soju was used as a like diplomatic gift wow. so when the foreign envoys came they gave uh, many like 50 bottles of soju along with others fermented wine and we have a lot of documentation about soju in the middle of the Joseon dynasty we also see a cookbook written by women author, and it was the head of the household uh, taking in charge of the ancestor rituals and uh, she wrote a cookbook and it explains how to make soju cool the writing is not very clear it's not different from the recipe we see in the uh, modern day cookbooks so because they knew how to make it and so like a b c d e then she skips like b and d and suddenly (laughs)
0: from one she's like you know what to do Yeah. yeah
2: yeah but clearly we can see how they make soju so Actually, interesting thing is that, so the steel I uh, mentioned earlier, the Korean distillation apparatus. So later it became more sophisticated, but previously they just used a pot. So I think we can also wow. try, yeah, just pot and then uh, put the fermented liquor and then boil it. But inside the pot, they put a small bowl. Oh, interesting. And then they put the lid upside down. So, uh, they can sometimes put cold water and then the vapor became drops and falls down to the bowl inside the pot. It takes time and they receive these precious drops. Yeah, and then later they take out the drops from the pipe that goes outside the and the famous scholar uh, I I showed you the diagrams complicated diagrams mm-hmm. based on uh, just our convention <laughs> so we can divide uh, uh into few categories, especially uh, for the Asian Asian style, Asiatic uh, steers, Chinese style, and Mongol styles. The Mongol styles is simple, like it's just one pot-like thing, and inside they put a bowl. And the Chinese one is more complicated, and, and I actually have a drawing in my book. And also Chinese used both kinds, and the Mongols nowadays in modern Mongolia they make arhi, uh, this uh, Mongolian distilled liquor based on fermented mare's milk or cow's milk. So mm-hmm. Arakhi is Mongolian and definitely the name uh, came from Arak, the Middle Eastern liquor. We just call uh, the two types of uh, steers just for convenience. And then the Mongols brought the simple uh, Mongolian style steel. So I argue that actually because they had a simple steel, it was able to spread more quickly. And yeah, and exactly, there are several uh, documentations that plan this, this distillation process.
0: It sounds like there is so much more that our listeners can look into about soju and all kinds of other liquors, Mongolian history. I love that there are so many things that I want to research after uh, having this conversation with you.
2: Yeah, so thank you. So also in my final chapter and with conclusion, I said, uh, we're... Uh, I had to focus on soju, especially for the later period. But really, there will be many interesting stories and in, uh, about how Arak, uh, yeah, was influenced. Uh, the Middle Eastern Arak uh, was yeah. influenced by the Mongols, and of course, Arak itself is from the Middle East. The term Arak means like perspiration or uh, sweat. Mm-hmm. But in the Middle East, very few documentations uh, talk about Arak as distilled liquor, and maybe some religious reasons. But scholars think that it was not very popular. The Arak liquor, um, was transferred to China through, uh, the merchants, Indian Ocean trade. And the Chinese called Arak as a foreign or southern barbarian. That means foreign Xiaozhou, foreign uh, distilled liquor. I believe they thought it's similar to uh, Xiaozhou, but a little different. And, and then the Arak began to uh, appear in many Chinese and Korean documents. And then after the Mongol period, also in Iran and Turkey. In Turkey, they have Raki is from Arak too, like A is B-Sylon. And then, and Raki and also Ar-hi in Mongolia. So it just kept spreading. The European distillation, the European spirits also began to flourish more from the 14th and 15th century. So, uh, compared to other wines, um, spirits has a little shorter history, but actually goes back to uh, ancient period if we consider this uh, distillation technology. I called for more studies and one of my colleagues, Alexander, he wanted to study the history of vodka. He read my article and very uh, he wanted to also study the history of vodka. So,
0: That's amazing. Yeah. I think we can all agree that liquor is a good idea. That's what I'm taking away from this, that distillation is an amazing chemical process and and, you know, most cultures and most people have a reason to distill spirits. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Park, thank you so much for sharing all, I'm sure, just a fraction of your knowledge about soju with us. I cannot wait to read the book again with all of the knowledge that I have now. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: I should thank you so much for inviting me to talk about my new book and share more stories with readers interested in various stories in our
0: lives. And yeah, it was really fun. And it was my absolute pleasure to talk with you. Of course. Thank you so much. And everybody, remember, stay creepy. Stay cool.